Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Bill Drips, and I'm an elder here at Grace Fellowship Church. And I'm delighted to be with you this morning. We are going to be doing a three-part sermon series on uh, on marriage. And the first one is, that we're going to do today is the first marriage, uh, Genesis uh, 1 through 3. Uh, my beautiful wife, Bonnie, is here today, and we've been married for 40 years, and it's still getting better. Of course, if you, you could check with her to see how truthful that statement is, but I definitely feel that. <clears throat> so we were married in 1975. Probably a few of you here were alive back in 1975, but uh, there's probably quite a few that were not. So let's pray. Father, as we get into your word, we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight. We pray that you would give us willing hearts. Help us to hear what you're teaching us today. Help us to give you the glory and the honor. And we pray in your son's name. Amen. So going over a passage like Genesis 1 through 3, it's a fairly long passage, but it all stands together as a unit. And it communicates something as a unit. And uh, so we're going to give a go at that today, see how we do. There's some questions. What is a good marriage? And who defines that? Oprah? What can you do to make your marriage good? And these are some of the questions that we hope hope to look at in this series. Many people spend a great deal of time and money on their weddings I've heard amazing amounts of money spent on weddings. And yet sometimes it seems like the more they spend on the wedding, the worse the marriage. Let me just encourage you to work more on your marriage than on your wedding. It's fine if if the Lord provides and, and you have money to spend on a wedding. But I would just really encourage us to think more about making the marriage, good, and not just the wedding. There's some perspectives from the world on uh, on marriage. There's many of them out there. I'll mention two. One is the Disney solution. You find your true love, and I wonder if that's actually trademarked by Disney. You find your true love, and then you live happily ever after. The problem is that feelings change. One day, you wake up, and you find that you don't feel love with the same intensity. Then you start to wonder if it really was true love. And finally, you realize you're not really in love anymore. Feelings of true love turn out to be a shaky foundation. We see that demonstrated around us all the time. So uh, a, uh, a solution that sounds a little more reasonable is I call the eHarmony solution. And that you find someone who's compatible. And then you live happily ever after. Uh, This is actually a worse problem. Not only do feelings change, people change. One day you will wake up and find your compatible spouse is no longer compatible. If you haven't learned how to work through your incompatibility, your marriage is just a wreck waiting to happen. Compatibility is also not reliable. From a biblical perspective, the only guaranteed path to happiness 
is the fulfillment of God's promises. And we live to please God. He doesn't promise a rose garden. He doesn't promise an easy life or a perfect marriage. He does promise the fullest possible life and a perfect eternity. We were designed to glorify God. We are happiest when he fulfills his design purpose in us. Seeking our happiness first, when we seek our happiness first, it leads to sorrow. Seeking him first leads to happiness. Let me read a section from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 25 and 30 through 33. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, seek your own happiness. What happens? It never quite works out that way. Seek the Lord's kingdom and his righteousness, and then he makes sure that you get all the rest of these things. With no apology to Thomas Jefferson, you know who Thomas Jefferson was? You know, with no apology to Thomas Jefferson, my point is that the pursuit of happiness is not an inalienable right. You can try, but you can't make it happen. The direct pursuit of happiness is a trap. It will lead to self-centered unhappiness. Paradoxically, but by God's design and promise, if we seek his kingdom first, then we find happiness. So it's not wrong to want happiness. What the scriptures are telling us is how to get there. Now, I've reached that stage in life where the years before me are most certainly less than the years behind me. And in those years, I have not found an exception to what God has said about happiness. Everyone experiences hardship and suffering, but only those who pursue Jesus find happiness. Today, we'll start with God's design in the first marriage. Next week, we'll look at the last marriage. And the week after that, we'll look at the messy marriage. So let's look at Genesis 1 and God's design for man. That's Roman number one in today's outline. God's design for man. God's design for man is to be in his image. We are to be like him in character, though we are far less than him in his nature. For example, while we are to love one another as Christ loved us, we are not designed to be omnipotent, omniscient, nor omnipresent. And if you have any doubts about that, Go to the top of one of the parking garages downtown and jump off. 
you will find that you are either omniscient, omnipotent, or omnipresent. Don't do that, by the way. So I'd like to, to read Genesis 1 for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants bearing seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Can you imagine being there watching this happening? I mean, just think about that. This is an incredible demonstration of power. There's that little comic where they have the, the scientists thinking E equals MC squared, you know? And that, the, you know, this is supposed to be something so profound. Think about speaking plants into existence, and he's just getting started. This is incredible. And God called the, called the dry land earth, and the waters that were, no, it's so, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants, yielding seed according to their kind and trees bearing fruit in which is their kind is their seed excuse me each according to its kind and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day and God said let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for light for signs and for season for days and for years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so and God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day and God said let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let, the, let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters with the seas. And let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. You see how God sets up a progression here as he creates? This is not just a random sort of collection of ideas. He starts with the big, broad brushstrokes around the edges. You know how painters work where they, they put a background on the, on the painting first? Uh, what do they call it? A coating of paint? And then they start blocking things in. And then they finally get to the real subject of the painting. And then they really get detailed. You see him doing that here. He, uh, he starts with broad brush strokes around the edges, and then he moves towards the center, filling in more detail as he goes. Finally, he culminates the cre- with his creation with man on the sixth day. He spends far more time describing that sixth day because he's creating man. He makes man in his image on the sixth day. Throughout this chapter, he has said his creation was good. Now with the creation of man, he calls it very good. Nowhere else, nowhere does God say that anything else is made in his image except for here. Every other time the scriptures think, speak of something in God's, of men, of an image being created, they speak of it negatively. There was one thing on this whole planet, in the whole of all creation, that God created to bear his image, and it's you and me. Now, I can believe it about you, because most of you are pretty good looking. But I just look in the mirror and I think, good grief, God, what are you doing? He bursts into poetry when he's describing the creation of man. And when do you burst into poetry? It's when things are really good. He gives man's purpose to be fruitful and to be responsible for the earth. Again, we are made in God's image. We are not an accident. We are God's design. We are not part of Mother Earth. We are God's sons and daughters. We are not animals. We are God's representatives. We are his images, witnesses to his glory and greatness. There's more to being made in his image, but we'll get to that and more in the next sections. We are God's loved ones, his intimate friends, the crown of his creation. We are his design, but that is not all that he intended. There is much, much more. But we need to understand that as we start looking at what marriage is, that we were created to bear his image. And that's going to radically impact our view of marriage. Let's go on to God's design for marriage. And we'll get into that by looking at Genesis chapter 2. I'll read that to you. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that God made the earth and heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden of Eden, a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree in the midst of the garden, and the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, the name of it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone were there, and the name of the second river is Gihon. And the one that flowed, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every burst of the he- bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made to a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and holds fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So man was responsible to work the garden, to keep it, and to make it fruitful. That pretty much echoes what we heard in in the, the sixth day of creation. And man was to fill the earth and be responsible for it. But, but, if you remember that first year, first chapter, how did Moses punctuate his description of creation? He, he punctuated it by God saying, and it was good, and God saw that it was good. And, God, and then he gets down to that, Sixth day, and it's very good. That really stands out from that first chapter. What do we hear in this chapter? For the very first time, we hit not good in the Bible. And what was not good? Well, it was the man was alone. 
What's interesting here is it was God who first saw the problem and took the initiative to provide the solution. God's solution was a helper fit for him. Now let me say this and get it straight. We should trust him to do that for us as well. Well, that doesn't mean you can't go on a date. I mean, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that our confidence should be in him to provide partners for us. Okay, so that was the first not good, and God's having a solution to that. And I'm sure that all of you women got, uh, appreciated the fact that man was created from the dirt, right? But that woman was created from flesh, that so. You can go where you want with that. I'm not going to say where you should go with that. Naming things was taking part of responsibility for the earth. We still do it today. It's critical in every area of knowledge. You see forestry majors walking around campus saying, well, this is a thus and this is a that. And I'm looking at, yeah, it's a tree. <laughs> and they've, they've got all these names for it. Um, in every field of study, you define things. If you're in chemistry, you learn the periodic table of the elements. The basis of knowledge actually is classifying things and giving names to it. Because without that, you can't communicate. You know the watcher over there that's over in that lot down past the other street? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, one thing to notice here is woman is created like man, but also unlike him. Man was from dust, woman was from man. Mankind has been described as two different species in a symbiotic relationship. And those that have been married the longest probably appreciate that the most. Whether, whether our society believes it or not, there is a difference between men and women. It's actually key to God's plan for us reflecting his image. Men recognized that woman was wonderful, didn't he? When he saw the woman, he says, whoa, man. No, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> It's also being part of being made in God's image. Marriage is where two become one. This reflects the Trinity where God is three in one. So the fact that marriage is two in one actually reflects who God is. Remember when Genesis 1 where God described himself as us, let us make God in our image? That was not a mistake. God was even three in one way back then. On a human level, we understand that a real team is more than just some of its members. For example, you've probably noticed this, a fist hits a lot harder than five fingers do. You ever go into a fight decide you were going to slap it out? <laughs> just so, it is supposed to be so much more than just two people. And just as an aside, that's the problem with same-sex marriage. You miss out in this whole dimension of otherness that's designed as part of what we need to 
needs to be part of the marriage. If, if your goal is just to be comfortable in life, don't ever get married. <laughs> really. I mean, buy bonbons and a big screen TV and just sit there and get fat. I mean, at least you'll feel happy until the coroner takes you out. God's design is to change us into, our, into his image, and that involves hooking us up with somebody who at a, the basis of every cell in their body is different than us. Marriage is to be our ranking human relationship. It comes before family ties. Man leaves his father and his mother. Marriage is to be intimate. There's no part of us to hide. And certainly this included sex, but one flesh means so much more than that. So we have seen that God's design for mankind is that we reflect his image. Our character was made to conform to his. We will only experience true, lasting happiness when we are conformed to him. And now we have seen we were not made to be alone. We were made for close relationships with other godly people. Now, in this passage, marriage is the focus. But real fellowship is a benefit that is that is a benefit for singles as much as for those who are married. But what about when bad stuff happens? Bad stuff ever happened to anybody here? Let's go to Genesis and see how God reacts to bad stuff. Let's look at Roman numeral 3, God's perseverance through the fall of marriage. Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the woman said to them, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he, da, 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 he ate. Then the eyes of both, excuse me, the da, da, da wasn't in there. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Stand up, God. What can we say? Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this tree that you, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Brilliant. Brilliant. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. 
On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your faith you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man and at the east of the he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, the fall of man can actually be related to a marriage malfunction. This was a, a dysfunctional marriage, wasn't it? They were not doing the right thing. It starts with an innocent sounding question. It's ambiguous. He could be trying to clarify, but he's really showing, sharing, sowing doubt. The enemies of marriage are crafty. Temptation always looks really good. It wouldn't be temptation if it looked awful. <clears throat> Intimacy was broken. Fear breaks out. They go hide in the bushes. And you can see where simply the rebellion actually began the work of death in their lives because they start acting out of fear. And death has already entered in at that point. It didn't get God doing anything. Now, God comes along and look, as you have a chance, look carefully at this curse to see what he actually cursed. He only cursed two, th- he cursed two things. He cursed the serpent and he cursed the ground. He was royally honked off, but he did not curse either Adam or Eve. And that's remarkable. That is truly remarkable. They both suffer severe consequences. Death is very real at this point. They suffer severe consequences. That flaming sword, sword that means they can't get back to Eden, they are now cut off from the tree of life. Right? This is like somebody whose throat has been cut and there's no medical help available. They may still be going there, but they are as good as dead, right? The source was cut off with the flaming sword. On the day they ate, death began. Sadly, as we continue through Genesis, we see almost every category of man's inhumanity to man, starting with one of their children murdering the other. I don't know about you, but personally, I can't imagine a parent going anything through, through anything worse than having one children murdering another. Wow. But if you look carefully at this passage, you see God's grace at work. 
And this is my main point here. That God does not give up. Okay? Would he have been justified in just nuking the whole place and starting over? Totally. Yeah. But he does not give up. Centers and enters the world. God's creation is tragically marred. But God uses even the death sense to begin his work of redemption. It's just like cancer. If you have cancer and you don't treat it, what will happen? You will die. But if you put that cancer in you to death, what will happen? You will live. Most treatments of cancer are an attempt to kill the cancer, right? God sees that Adam and Eve have taken this cancer into themselves and he levels levies death so that he can save them. <clears throat> when the cancer dies, then the healthy part of you can live. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord, God uses the consequences of sin to make us desperate enough to repent and receive his free gift. Certainly that redeems us, but it also redeems our marriages. Clear application. What should you do when your spouse fouls up? Spouse fouls up, right? You should love her to do that penalty, right? No. You should remember what Jesus has, has paid for for your sake, and you should forgive him. Forgive your spouse as Christ forgave you. So by way of summary, we've seen God's design for mankind is that we reflect his image. We are, conform, we are to be conformed to his image in every area of life. We do not become superheroes, but we are indwelt by the one true superhero and savior of the world, and we serve him in his work. We've also seen that his design for marriage also reflects his image. Particularly, the unity of marriage reflects the unity of the Trinity. C.S. Lewis has observed that there must be more than one person in the Trinity for there to be love. Otherwise, God's love would, for himself would be self-love. And we all know that's not a cool thing. But with there being three persons in the Trinity, and they can each love each other, it's interesting, isn't it? And it's interesting how that reflects in marriage. And it's actually part of the image. And finally, we have seen that even when the worst happens and rebellion terribly mars his creation, he still works for our good. When God levied the penalty of death on Adam and Eve, he knew that he would eventually pay that penalty. He was actually levying that death penalty on himself. How many of us here have the guts for that? He knew he would be the one who eventually paid that penalty of death when he sent his beloved, his son Jesus, to die for us. Remember that when you think on these things. When sin injures human relationships, remember that Jesus, as Jesus restored our relationship with the Father, he, also, he can also restore our human relationships, including marriage, now. We live now in a broken world. All relationships suffer from this brokenness. 
All marriages now suffer brokenness, but good marriages and good relationships are worth that struggle. Jesus has paid the debt that was required for our redemption and the redemption of our marriages. That means that the odds are now tilted in our favor and the struggle is worth it. But remember that as you seek happiness from marriage, you will inevitably suck the life out of your marriage and your spouse. True happiness only comes from seeking God first. And if you seek for your happiness from marriage, you, you will doom it. But as you seek God's kingdoms first, you will find more happiness than you truly believe possible. And God will use marriage and all of your other relationships in your life to conform you to his image. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that uh, you loved us enough to create us in your own image, to make us like your son. And then, Father, you went beyond that. You gave us worthwhile tasks to perform, things that are, uh, that give you glory and honor. And finally, Father, when our forefathers fouled up, you intervened to redeem us and to redeem all of our relationships, all of our marriages. We are so grateful, Father, that you sent Jesus for us. And we pray in his name. Amen.